without giving her time to react. Sheila turned and pushed Elisa to the floor and then mounted her. She tore Elisa's shirt open and put her mouth to her erect nipples, sucked them, teased them with her teeth. Grabbing Sheila by the ass, Elisa pulled her forward, pushed her up until she was kneeling over her open mouth. And then, there is this. Take off all your clothes, lie down on your belly, and close your eyes. The rat orders after we enter the tackiness. That is room 413 at the Holiday Inn. I want to show you something. Another watch? His cock? Some strange hospital equipment? But this is my game, and I'm stripping down and stretched out. He's searching in his bag, and I'm peeking out one eye, and he's bringing out what looks like a bottle of oil. I used to work as a masseuse, he says, as he climbs up on top of me and begins with my back. Let me massage this fine body, sweetheart. When his hands start in on me, I see this boy starting to slide way up my sexual rating chart. By the time he's worked me over with his oil front and back, I'm completely limp in his hands and ready for anything, and he's entering me from behind and riding me hard and holding my hair tight with one hand and slapping my ass with the other. He's got me hollering, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me. And I know that if this rat was around in the 14th century, they would have definitely written the word down. There you have it. The beginning of another episode of Dirty Poetry, using the word poetry very loosely, of course. This episode is a couple of stories about libraries and librarians. But before we get to the goddesses who bring life to those hallowed halls, let's give some credit to the students and researchers who find their adventures back in the stacks. Our first story is about a grad student who, in a haze of exhaustion, discovers what she is really looking for. This is entitled Between the Pages, written by Z.S. Rowe. Quote, Softly, without meaning to, she moaned. On the university library's sixth floor, Beyond the study carols, past dozens of floor-to-ceiling bookshelves, Sheila stood weak-kneed. It was nearing eleven at night, and she was alone, save for the first-year undergrad shelving books down a far aisle. A little out of breath, she straightened the legs of her jeans, smoothed out the wrinkles in her blouse. The book, the one with the author photo at the back, lay open on the floor where she dropped it. Sheila stared at it uncertain. She had found it misplaced among the countless journals that only researching grad students like herself ever read. She had gathered a dozen volumes in a pile beside her on the floor and was reaching for another one on the bottom shelf, her fingers brushing each spine in turn, when she happened upon it. It was smaller than the rest, hardbound. Its dust jacket was still in place, and so it was not a library book. Its cover was of a young woman's empty bedroom, 
but shot from outside the window looking in. It made Sheila feel like a voyeur, but yet the feeling was a little exciting. The book was a collection of poetry. The title, which ran in thin script across the top of the cover, was only two words. I want. Looking at it now, she felt lightheaded. In the past two weeks, Sheila had spent most of her waking hours at the library searching the stacks for something that might solidify her floundering dissertation. In turn, she was getting less and less sleep, and her exhaustion showed. Was she having waking dreams? She didn't know. She didn't think so. Still, that she found herself suddenly sitting on a pile of books on the floor without any memory of having sat down was startling. The book was open in her lap. Had I been reading it, she wondered? Trying to account for the blank in her memory, she thumbed through the last few pages and then to the photo of the young woman on the back inside flap. The author, Olisa Kovalevska, seemed confident, unwavering, fully in the moment, not at all like any of the women that Sheila had dated. In the photo, Olisa was sitting by a window wearing a man's brown dress shirt, but with the top three buttons undone and the sleeves rolled up. She was likely wearing a skirt, but the camera caught her at knee level, and so with one leg drawn up and the other one leaning against it and her shirt falling just past mid-thigh, Olisa appeared to be wearing nothing from the waist down. Her right hand rested atop her raised knee, her left lay between her legs. Sheila flipped back through the book to the title poem. Sitting on her pile of books, she read quietly, mouthing each word. I want to fuck you, she said. And the other woman unbuttoned her blouse and slid out of her pleated skirt and stood before her, anticipating. Sheila sucked in a long, ragged breath Her head spun, but she tried to convince herself that it was the sixth floor that was spinning, not her tiredness showing through. She doubted she could trick herself that easily, and yet she persisted in it, refusing to blame the late hour or her exhaustion. What am I doing, she wondered. Am I that desperate for a distraction that I need some passing fantasy? Sitting on her pile of books, she leaned against the nearest bookshelf. And it was then that she noticed the woman standing on the other side of the shelves. Through the shelves, she could see bare legs, long and smooth. For a moment, Sheila just sat there, completely still, wondering when someone else had come onto the floor and how she hadn't noticed. But then the woman knelt, moving slowly. Bare legs became thighs and then became a thin waist hidden behind an untucked dress shirt. In three short breaths, she was at Sheila's level. Their eyes met. Sheila gulped, disbelief lining her face. Olisa smiled knowingly. Sheila closed her eyes, opened them, and blinked. From below her, she felt a tremor 
that slid into a soft rumble that grew until it was up inside her, softly pulsing. Alicia's smile widened, and Sheila found herself suddenly wondering what it would feel like to run her tongue along Alicia's top lip, to feel Alicia's tongue meet her own. The thought made her blush. The two women stared at each other, Sheila sitting atop a pile of books on one side of the bookshelf, Olisa kneeling on the other, her hands resting between her legs. The stirring within Sheila began to balloon, and when she rose onto her knees, shifting closer, her vision blurred. She blinked and saw Olisa rising. She blinked again, and Olisa was already halfway down the aisle. Sheila scrambled to her feet and hurried down her own aisle. Wait, hold on a minute. But Elisa was gone. And then Sheila heard someone approaching from behind her, heard the steady rhythm of the person breathing as they neared, heard her own breathing quicken in response. She turned, but before she could fully realize who it was, she was already being pushed against the bookcase, Shelves pressed into her back, her thighs, her ass. Like a phantom, Olisa had appeared suddenly and just as quickly slid her bare legs between Sheila's and then began tug at Sheila's tucked-in blouse, popping its buttons. Sheila hissed, shit, her body stiffening, and then Olisa kissed her, with her lips parted and wet. Sheila slipped her tongue into Olisa's mouth, felt Olisa's tongue meet her own. She undid Sheila's pants while Sheila popped the remaining buttons of her own blouse and then pulled it open. She kissed Sheila's mouth, her neck, and then slipped her right hand into the undone pants, into her panties, slipping two fingers along the lips of Sheila's pussy. Sheila gasped. In the small space between the two bookcases, Olisa spun her around and bent her over, trying to steady herself. Sheila gripped the nearest shelf and then kicked her feet out from the legs of her pants and kicked the pants away. Olisa pulled off Sheila's blouse and then unhooked her bra, letting both fall to the floor. She ran a hand down Sheila's chest, down her stomach, down further, until her fingers were deep between Sheila's legs, stroking, teasing. Sheila moaned. As Elisa pushed two fingers inside her, sliding them in and out, Sheila bucked hard, making Elisa's fingers slide further in, deeper and then out, deeper still and then out. A book on the shelf Sheila was gripping fell to the floor, and then two more books fell from their shelves, hit the carpet. Olisa was panting, sliding her fingers in and out of Sheila's pussy, while her other hand cupped Sheila's breast, one and then the other, squeezing her nipples, one and then the other. Without giving her time to react, Sheila turned and pushed Olisa to the floor, and then mounted her. She tore Olisa's shirt open and put her mouth to her erect nipples, sucked them, teased them with her teeth. Grabbing Sheila by the ass, Elisa pulled her forward, pushed her up until she was kneeling over her open mouth. Arching her back, Sheila closed her eyes and felt herself shaking. Elisa's wet mouth was like a burning ember, her tongue like a lick of flame. A moment before she came, Sheila thought she could hear nothing, 
but her own ragged breathing. Gone were the books, the shelves, even Olisa. Just inhale and exhale like the rapid beating of her heart, and then she gasped, and her eyes shot open, and she was still sitting alone, in the middle of the last aisle, on the top floor of the university library. On the floor in front of her was, I want. She could still hear the soft whirring of the heating system, still hear the kid working through the aisles on the other end of the floor. She let out a long, deep breath. Ten minutes later, she'd gathered everything she needed and was headed for the stairs when the undergrad student caught her by the exit. He was leaving, too. He held open the door to the stairwell for her and smiled. Finally found something worth checking out, huh? Sheila smiled in turn. I want was the only book she'd taken with her. Yeah, she said, grinning. I think I have. Unquote. That was Between the Pages, written by Z.S. Rowe, who describes himself as a book lover, a tea addict, and by trade, a glass worker. Z.S. Rowe is primarily a poet, but nevertheless has published ten short stories, the latest being What Grew Before the Sun, which was published in the Big Book of Orgasms, Volume 2, that came out in 2022. For many of us, who came from a time before there was an Internet, Libraries were our window on the world. Like diving into an ocean, there was always so much more to explore. They were all, large and small, places that were cherished and revered. They were, and are, populated by brilliant women. Brilliant women who work so hard at being contained and proper. But to my eye, they are goddesses who bring life to hallowed halls. And they are always so much more a woman than their work allows them to be. When I was young, I would travel to one of the great libraries, sometimes several hours on a bus. There were statues by famous artists at the entrance, and great art hung in the walls. The main reading room was huge, long and cavernous, with a high arched and vaulted ceiling. As you entered, there was the scent of old books with the promise of ancient knowledge for those who would dig. All of it free to the people. It was a hallowed and solemn place. For a time, I would go there every week or two. The subject I was interested in those days was propulsion units. This caught the attention of a particular research librarian who set herself on the hunt for me. I would stop by her desk to pick up her list of references and the bundle of photocopies she had collected for me from the latest journals and sometimes even restrict government research. She was brilliant and beautiful. When there was occasion to come around the desk, I could catch the faint flowery springtime perfume of my librarian mingled with the scent of fresh photocopies on her desk. All of that 
with the bass note of old books and leather that permeated the place. Those memories have not faded. I do have a confession, though. It was not until very recently that I realized that I am not the only one who has fantasies of the goddesses who inhabit libraries. I'm not the only one who thinks intelligent women are sexy. Who knew? Joe Cocker sings, you can leave your hat on. Well, as far as I'm concerned, you can leave your glasses on, too. No doubt, the libraries were where my fascination with intelligent women began. And speaking of intelligent, interesting women, our next story is written by Susanna Indigo. Susanna Indigo is a character in her own right. She is, and has been for many years, a very active and prolific erotic short story author. She has edited many erotic short story anthologies. She founded in 1998 the erotic literary journal Clean Sheets, which, in its day, was a home to a great many erotic writers. She has since gone on to co-found and is currently an editor at Slow Trains, a general literary journal that covers a wide range of subjects. Many of today's greatest writers have found a home there. The next story that I have for you I read many years ago, and it stuck in my mind, but I lost it to the sands of time. This story, The Year of Fucking Badly, is the story of a lot of surprisingly good sex that can be had while researching bad sex. It was first published on the Clean Sheets website in 2008. I recently rediscovered it, and I want to bring it to you. I rediscovered it in Maxim Jakubowski's The Mammoth Book of Quick and Dirty Erotica from 2013, as it happens. My used copy was originally from the collection of a big city public library, but it appears to be uncirculated, never checked out. I can only hope that my copy was part of some librarian's private erotic collection. I consider the next story to be one of the classics of erotic short story literature. I hope you do too. Let's see what you think. This is entitled, The Year of Fucking Badly, written by Susanna Indigo. Quote, There is no such thing as bad sex, I say to no one in particular. We're sitting at a big oval table at the Empress Gardens, eating dim sum to celebrate the Chinese New Year when it all begins. It's the beginning of the year of the ox, a year that's supposed to bring the promise of new discoveries. Or maybe fertility, I forget. My friend Bill replies, of course there is, Kenna. Bad sex. Sex so awful, so unexpected, so terrible, that just telling someone about it later makes them turn away in laughter or horror. That really exists? then why hasn't anybody made a whole magazine or something about it ever? I can picture bad relationships, bad love, even bad breakups, but not plain old bad sex. 
unless you're counting boring sex, and then if you do, boring sex rules half the world, and it's all too often the norm rather than the exception. Bill pauses and puts a hand on my knee. You want me to show you, Kenna? I laugh. Bill is my sweet friend and my occasional fuck buddy, and about as obsessed by sex as I am. He's a pig, as in the year of, defined quite appropriately as a sensual hedonist. I know this fact because I work as a research librarian, an information specialist, they call us nowadays. And I get so many calls this time of year about Chinese astrology that I keep the chart by my desk. I hike my black leather skirt a little higher as Bill watches, smiling. Hell, you know what I like, Bill. Most anything that moves, to put it mildly. What exactly would you do to show me bad sex? Take me home and fuck me for five minutes in a missionary position? Then roll over and say goodnight? I don't talk this way around work, of course, where I wear my wavy red hair up in a bun, skip the leather, and leave the contacts home for my everyday glasses. Bill offers to rape me if I want, which hurts my brain to think about. Everybody knows rape is not about sex. But if I let him rape me, is it still rape? I'm such a pervert, I'd probably like it no matter what. More stories, says Brian, across the table from me, probably trying to deflect the conversation away from rape, which nobody ever talks about, but most everybody fantasizes about. Mary says, define bad. I wave my little librarian hand, at least I can add this. Did you know that the word bad is thought to originate from two old English homophobic words from about the 13th century, Badel and Badling, which were derogatory terms for homosexuals with overtones of sodomy. Really? Yeah, can't recall why I remember this, but maybe it caught my attention because of those overtones of sodomy. Everyone around the table goes on to tell their own bad sex story. The boys almost always include not being able to get it up, but that strikes me as bad imagination or even bad ego rather than bad sex. Let's face it, women know they make enough cocks down at good vibrations to keep us girls happy for the rest of our lives. I notice a trend. Every bad story seems to supply bare-bones details, a gasp, and then trails off into, and it was so awful. I'm racking my brains for a story of my own as my turn arrives. I think about the worst situation I can remember. The guy I married when I was 18, my manic, depressive young husband. I remember getting divorced from him at 20. I remember the angry words, suicide threats. I remember the cold metal, the gun on my bare thigh the night before I finally moved out. I remember being terrified. I also remember being very, very wet. No, I imagine that story won't work. Nabeko starts in on a story about a woman who wanted to tie her up and how shocking this was to her. I can't stand it. The world is desperately in need of more people with enough passion and drive to understand the dynamics revealed in restraints. You wouldn't believe how many people I've actually had to ask to tie me up pretty please.
which tends to limit the hive submissiveness. Believe me, the concept of men and domination is a myth. I shrug and pass on telling a story when it's my turn, and after a couple more it was awfuls, the conversation turns to great sex. But the bad sex concept holds my mind, and I know there is no way to look this up in my library. Field research is required. I never pass on anything. That's why people like me become researchers. Because the urge to know everything and anything about a subject is overwhelming once it slips into that certain mind-curiosity groove. If there's bad sex out there, I'll find it. I try to explain to my upstairs neighbor and lover, it's sort of a scavenger hunt for bad sex, Holly. We're buried deep under her pink comforter eating chocolate chip cookies that night. Holly is the Martha Stewart of my love life. Candlelight and cookies and flowers all the time. Some nights, just walking into her place is better than actual sex. She's year of the dragon, as into mind touching as body touching. Sometimes I have bad sex with myself, Holly offers. You know. Those nights when even your own fingers bore you to death. Bad sex, for one, sounds like something stofers would make. Monogamy is not a fetish of mine, but I still feel a little guilty, even though Holly and I have always been open about any other lovers we might have. I decided a long time ago that two lovers was exactly the right number for me. My other lover is a student named Keith. Year of the snake, like me, but from a different generation, 12 years younger. He knows what I need. He likes to use my hair to tie me up in strange places before he fucks me, and I'm immensely fond of that particular knot. Holly agrees that it might be a good project, as long as I promise to only attempt bad sex. She's an academic, so she decides to chart this all out for me. We decide that random bad sex would probably have to involve a stranger. We decide that I need to keep a log of it all, and that there has to be a way to sort it out. She remembers the old Sears catalog rating of good, better, best when buying products, and decides that that will do. Our final scale runs worst, worse, bad, boring, good, better, best, and that's it. I'm off for the hunt. Driving down Broadway that first night, I sense one problem. I'm already wet at the promise of getting laid by someone new. I'm trying to control myself by reciting the Dewey Decimal System out loud. The lounge at the Holiday Inn on Colfax is the first stop. I'm wearing fishnet stockings and leather, but my hair is pulled back in a ponytail and my turtleneck rides high in a sort of combo slut cheerleader look. It doesn't take me long to pick out a paunchy-looking, balding guy at a table by himself and start the flirtation. He tells me his traveling salesman story, the exquisite details of selling hospital equipment, while I brush his leg with my boot and watch the surprise in his eyes at his luck. He's year of the rat, I find out. Outwardly cool, self-controlled, but passionate. 
push the button on my watch, he says, holding his wrist out for me to see. I push the button. Tell me what it says, Kenna. It says, I want to fuck. Pretty damn clever, I say. I'm stifling a laugh. Can I pick them or what? And in large letters, no less. I don't remember any mention of rats having crass taste in jewelry. I had it made special in Taiwan. Maybe, just maybe, I found what I'm looking for, and on my first try. I don't want to sleep with them, so I will. Wow, I say, flipping my ponytail, and yes. But do you know where the word fuck comes from? Now, why on earth would I share that with them, but I do. It's actually a mystery, but they think it might originally be from the Scandinavian foca. There's one written record of the word in 1278, and then nothing, nothing at all until 300 years later. Maybe because it was such a taboo to say it, they probably didn't even make watches back then. He reaches over and twists my hair in his meaty hand and whispers, I'll show you where it fucking really comes from, sweetheart. A kiss, the check, and he's guiding me to his room. Take off all your clothes, lie down on your belly, and close your eyes. The rat orders after we enter the tackiness that is room 413 at the Holiday Inn. I want to show you something. Another watch, his cock, some strange hospital equipment. But this is my game, and I'm stripping down and stretched out. He's searching in his bag, and I'm peeking out one eye and he's bringing out what looks like a bottle of oil. I used to work as a masseuse, he says, as he climbs up on top of me and begins with my back. Let me massage this fine body, sweetheart. When his hands start in on me, I see this boy starting to slide way up my sexual rating chart. By the time he's worked me over with his oil front and back, I'm completely limp in his hands and ready for anything, and he's entering me from behind and riding me hard and holding my hair tight with one hand and slapping my ass with the other. He's got me hollering, fuck me, fuck me, fuck me. And I know that if this rat was around in the 14th century, they would have definitely written the word down. Okay, so looks aren't a good indicator of bad sex, Holly, I admit, safely back in her pink bed. But what can I do? Interview people and ask them if they're a lousy lay? Holly's reviewing my log. All it says here is his hands, his hands, Kenna. Shit, that's all I can remember. It was great. She sighs, but we begin to plan the ex-lover possibility next. Julia was the love of my life ten years ago, until she decided she was too good for me and dumped me coldly. She's year of the monkey, clever, witty, manipulative, pretentious. Well, the Chinese chart doesn't really say all that, I'm just projecting. But I do distinctly remember her saying that she was only going to sleep with PhDs in the future after our breakup, and that she was only with me because she was crazy about my breasts. This has to be bad. I find her at her modern dance class where I show up in a low-cut black leotard to get her attention. I lied to her over lunch and tell her about my newly minted PhD in a 13th century dialect 
of Bedel Foca and get invited back to her place. I make up other stories for her about the places I've been and who I've met. When I create an imaginary friendship with Camille Paglia, who I know she idolizes, I'm in. She spreads her legs for me and I'm devouring her and I suddenly can't remember why I ever found her so attractive in the first place, but I go for the sex just to show her how hot I am, and it works. When I leave and turn at the door to tell her, I'm sorry, I won't be back, because I just realized that I should really only sleep with tenured professors. I realize that this is the most fun I've had in weeks. I try to dive back into work and forget this whole idea, but every research question I'm asked sounds like sex. I've started watching everybody I see and thinking all the time about how they fuck, why they fuck, where they fuck, is it good, what do they do badly. When I'm not answering the phone, I can be found doing some heavy breathing back in section 306.7, reading every sex book I can get my hands on. Hell, I'm so immersed in it, I could practically write a thesis. Maybe you can get a PhD in bad sex. Joe's Bait Shop, the local dive bar. Holly scoped a place for me over the weekend and thinks it's a guaranteed bad time. Every possible sport on a dozen big screen TVs, pool tables in the back. The bartender's a babe. It's amazing how fuckable everyone looks when you're looking for people who aren't. I'm wearing black tights, long baby blue sweater, black suede boots, and nothing underneath. I'm getting a few looks, but no bites because of the damn football game. I forgot it was Monday night. Maybe this is bad sex, when you can't even draw a man away from the television. I get myself a drink and wander towards the back room. There's some kind of meeting in progress and no TVs, so I slip in and sit down on an empty car chair in the back to check out the crowd. My goal the handsome man speaking says, is to help others achieve sexual sobriety. Wait, wait, sexual sobriety? Is that where you only fuck before you get drunk? The 12 steps were my saving grace, he continued. I turned my lust over to God. Holy shit, I think I've wandered into a meeting over Fuckers Anonymous. I laugh. Heads turn in my direction, followed by frowns at my laughter. I can't help it. I know they're deadly serious. But maybe God knows what bad sex is. I wonder, does God like having all this lust turned over to him? Didn't God turn it over to us in the first place? The speaker's looking right at me and smiling. Who would like to share their story with us today? He's got piercing green eyes and big shoulders and a fuzzy beard that I can already feel rubbing between my legs, and I'm considering making up a quick sad story to tell him, but I know I should consider getting the hell out of there instead. I do not volunteer. They'd never believe me if I told them the truth about why I'm here. But wait, bad sex, bad sex. These folks have potential. Oversexed people... Trying not to have sex could be real bad. 
Or would they be real good headed towards better best like reformed Catholic girls let loose? At the break, the speaker comes directly to me and introduces himself. My name is Tony, he says with a gorgeous grin. Oh my, I don't even have to ask. I know he's a tiger. As in, the year of, the hour of, the moment of, the bed of, the cock of, and I'm headed for trouble. I just stopped here accidentally, I say. Giving up lust, this is like a bad dream. I know, the tiger says. He pauses and then takes my arm firmly and guides me out toward the dark back corner of the bar. He smiles. But I'll bet your dreams are spectacular, darling. You look like a girl who knows how to dream. Fresh drinks in hand, strong arm wrapped around me. Do you dream in color, Kenna? That's the best pickup line I've heard in ages. Everyone does, Tony, or can. Did you know that nobody ever questioned this fact before the advent of black and white television in the 50s? Not Freud, not Jung. I hear my little librarian voice being smart, and at the same time, I feel my knees shaking like a little girl, and I just want to climb up on his lap and let him turn his lust over to me instead of God. He listens to me as though every word I utter is gold. He knows the secrets, words and hands and eyes and laughter, attention paid, intensity gained. But it keeps sneaking through the haze of my desire that this man is one of them. Tony, didn't I just hear you discussing sexual sobriety as a way of life? I ask as he pulls me onto his lap, and his hand is higher and higher on my thigh, so high and so right that I think I imagined it all, and that this is my punishment, or maybe my reward for thinking, and dreaming about sex day and night, and forever, ever pretending that I knew a single thing about what it all means. For you, darling, I'm willing to fall off the chastity wagon. His mouth is on mine, and he's biting my lip with the force that I need, and I am going, going, gone. I don't believe a word he says, and I don't care. The cock of the tiger is hard under my ass and all the lines are slipping away and good is blending into better and heading off the chart and he's whispering in my ear and I want it all and we're out the door. Before he starts the car, he says, pull down your tights and spread your legs and let me see. And I do. And he just watches me. When he stops the car at Sunset Park, a short drive away, and leans over, his beard is rough against my thighs exactly as I imagined it, and he's biting and sucking, and I'm in heaven, and then he's suddenly slowing way down. I shouldn't do this, he mumbles, with his mouth still buried in my pussy. Oh, God, maybe this is the bad sex I deserve. When it begins to orbit off the chart, and you know that somehow when it's over, it's going to wrap right back around and come up on an awful, horrifying side, as chastity reclaimed. I shouldn't do this, he repeats, and I think maybe he's waiting for me to save him. This is one of those damn defining moments in life. Define the moment, or it defines you. 
screw him or screw him, fuck it or fuck me. I reach down and stroke his hard cock through his jeans. I'll be good for you, tiger. Don't stop, don't stop. He lifts my sweater and we're tumbling toward the back seat like teenagers in lust. And I'm not sure I'll be able to excuse this behavior later as research, but maybe I don't even care. My tights are off and my legs are wrapped high around his big shoulders and his cock presses into me. He leans down and begins to bite my nipple and sends me over the edge. He pauses, and I think I will die if he stops one more time. You're right, darling, he whispers, driving hard into me. For tonight, there's no such thing as bad sex. Unquote. There you have it. Another episode of Dirty Poetry. I want you to check out the bookstore, dirtypoetsbookstore.com, and then come back and join me for the next episode of Dirty Poetry. Using the word poetry very loosely, of course.